Welcome, beautiful thinkers. I don't know if you can hear the sprinklers in the background, but I'm recording this in a little bungalow that I'm renting off Airbnb in Acapulco, Guerrero, Mexico. So down here for the Acapulco conference. I have been preparing for my speech and also doing a CBT workshop and a performance. And so I haven't had time to do a lot of interviews. So I'd like to present this special episode. It's a republish, a republication, an episode that I did a couple of years ago for the Paradise Paradox in, well, in 2019, around October, September, I noticed how wild things were getting with emotions, with anxiety. And so I, I started analyzing my own feelings and finding out more solutions and different perspectives that could potentially help others. So that's what it's about, anxiety mastery. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Paradise Paradox and welcome to Bogota, Colombia, otherwise known as La Nevera or the fridge. It's what people call it because of the little cold weather here. Now, I'd like to talk to you today about anxiety. I did put out that live stream and that podcast talking about it a few weeks back, but it's such a broad topic. I felt like it couldn't fit everything into that video. So I wanted to get a bit deeper and actually it's so deep. I, I keep going like every time I start thinking about this topic, there's just more stuff that comes up, new angles to look for solutions to this problem. So maybe I can make some more videos about this in the future. But this post, <laughs> this video, trying to make it quite extensive so you have a whole bunch of tools that you can use to try to improve your life when it comes to anxiety and nervousness and a lot of these are going to be applicable to depression and other so-called negative states of mind as well so i hope you like it i hope this helps you i hope this improves your life and makes you better makes you feel wonderful capture a glimpse of elation and then move into that higher brain state so you can come join the enlightened beings on an adventure through hyperspace. So without further ado, let's talk about that shit. <laughs> call this one anxiety mastery maybe that's a little bit of a pompous title but like i said i want to give you several angles to address this problem it's been affecting a lot of people lately including myself and i have found some ways out of it and not just ways to like sweep it under the carpet and hide it so it doesn't 
affect you as much, but actually ways to overcome it or integrate that experience into life. So even turn it into something beneficial, if you can believe that. <laughs> so the first thing I want to show you real quick is something really practical. It's a pranayama or breathing exercise taught to me by my friend Luis Fernando Mises. And Luis actually has an excellent video talking about the science behind this. And he's got some yoga angles and some thera therapeutic angles about this subject. So I'll put the link in the description when he gets that Vimeo link. So you guys can check that out. He's kind of charge, I think, just a few dollars for people to see it. It's worthwhile getting the perspective of the the man himself, the shaman with guns, Luis Fernando. So I'm just going to show you this breathing exercise. It goes like this. It's an alternate nostril breathing exercise. So the technique goes like this. You get your index finger and your middle finger, you apply it to the forehead, and then you have your ring finger and your thumb, so you can apply these to each nostril. So basically what we're doing is we're going to breathe from each nostril. So normally what happens is people have breathing from either the left nostril or the right nostril, and it tends to change every 40 minutes or hour, and supposedly it's linked to the hemispheres of your brain. So when you're thinking with your left hemisphere, you're more likely to use your right nostril. Well, what we want to do with this exercise is try to integrate the two hemispheres of our brain a little bit, and this will help you settle down. So first, what you do, as I said, apply the index finger and the middle finger. You apply your thumb to your right nostril, and you breathe in. Close both nostrils and hold it just for a couple of seconds. Breathe out through the right nostril. Breathe in through the right nostril. Hold it again. Breathe out through the left nostril. Now, if you do that for just one cycle, you're probably not gonna feel anything. But if you do it for about five cycles or for about five minutes, Perhaps you do it before you start your morning meditation or you do it when you wake up in the morning, do it before you go to sleep at night. It will help you clear your head a little bit, help you wake up in a more relaxed way and go to sleep in a more relaxed way. Just a couple of times a day for five minutes, it can make a huge difference. Now, people will just... <laughs> I've had people who just try it once, one cycle, and they're like, well, this didn't work. Well, you do have to stick with it a bit. But there are a couple of common pitfalls. Like I said, the nostril does, does switch every 40 minutes or hour, the dominant nostril. So some people will erroneously think that that means that they have some kind of cartilage block, blocking the nostril. Now, that's normally not the case. What's happening is just that's not the dominant nostril in that time. So, and that's exactly why we do this exercise. Then there's another thing. Of course, some people have a blocked nose. You might want to get an, a neti pot to deal with that. Or you just do it after you have a shower. Even if you have cold showers, your nose will, your mucus will tend to loosen up and you'll be able to breathe easier after you have a shower. Then there are other... There are other exercises, actually. I remember some described in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, 
where you get a piece of thread or a piece of cloth, very thin, and put it up your nostril and pull it out your mouth and use that to clean your nostril. Now, that's a bit extreme. Probably not many people want to do that. But the point is, <laughs> I think you can figure out some ways to clean your nostrils is something you need to be aware of. And you need to have a plan because sometimes when your nostrils aren't blocked, this exercise isn't easy. Now, some people also get self-conscious about doing this in public. But from my own experience, I can tell you people don't really care if you stop and do this. Like people don't even ask me why I'm doing it, which is kind of weird. I would be intensely curious if I saw someone doing something like that. But even if you need to retreat to the bathroom for five minutes to do some breathing exercises, it's good for you. It's a good idea. So that's something really simple. I hope you actually do it as you're listening just to try it out. And you can see that this is something practical. This is something that really works. So I hope that gives you a little bit of an idea that, that what I'm doing here is good. That brings me to my next point. A lot of people who are not familiar with me, they're going to ask, who is this guy? And why should I trust him? So that's that's an important question. I don't have any qualifications in terms of psychology or anything like that. But I do have some key life experience. So actually, as a young man, I was a very nervous individual and very shy. And experienced some social anxiety. and was worried what people would think of me. And I managed to get over that through many years, through certain social experiences, entering the theater and knocking on doors for a living, all these kind of exposure therapy that I put on myself to try to develop my own character. And it worked. So I understand the psychology from a personal level, not in terms of textbook stuff, but in terms of participatory knowing. I have been there. I'm kind of with you guys. And there's also my experience in meditation. Now, life has been quite kind to me and I've had the, the experience of doing things. So earlier this year, I went to the countryside and, and stayed in a cottage for a month. And all I did for that month, my objective was just to be there and to meditate. And so that's what I did. I meditated for about 90 hours in, in that month, which was a pretty good amount. It was actually more than the amount I meditated the previous year. Also, I had some instruction when I was in a temple in Thailand. My friend who's a monk told me a lot of techniques for, for meditation and that allowed me to gain some insight on my own emotions. And my own emotions aren't really unique. They're really relate to just about every human being in this world. So I do understand these things quite thoroughly. Now, there's been this recent surge in anxiety in myself, and I've noticed it's, it's actually a trend. So when I mentioned to Luis, I've been feeling anxious lately, he said, yes, that's that's right. But a lot of people are feeling that way. A lot of people had, had asked Luis about it. And after he said that, I found myself... A lot of people in my social circle 
we're experiencing the same thing. Now, Luis says, he said to me that it's related to solar flares. And at first I was a bit skeptical, but when I started researching into it, there is this evidence about it. Specifically, there's one study, which I think they had about 10 or 20 years of data. It was in a town in Russia and they noticed the amount of psychological treatment that people would need at certain times. It tended to align increases, tended to align with increases in solar activity. So supposedly solar activity, excessive solar activity affects the Earth's magnetism and that in turn affects humans or it could also be about radiation i'm not sure but it's a, it's an interesting thing to look into i'll put a couple of links in the description so you can check that out for yourself if you're skeptical as i was <laughs> now uh, i'll give you an overview what i'm going to be talking about today because it's like i said there's a lot of angles to it first thing is about being open-minded how important it is to Try new techniques. That's like the fool's card in the tarot. I'll talk about a, an analogy which might give you some insight. It's an analogy about dropping a weight, which maybe will help you drop your anxiety. I'll talk about coping mechanisms and thriving strategies. So reactive and proactive ways of dealing with things about tech detox or technological minimalism talk about meditation of course that's a key part of this huge part of this talk about the way you think your mental habits how that affects your emotions and the power of language black and white thinking those are related things talk about how to stick with a habit and that's very important when we talk about self-help or self-improvement talk about how resistance can increase the exact thing that you're resisting and talk about faith or about how you are a part of a greater process, which can, all of these perspectives will help you put things into perspective (laughs) and start to figure out what's going on and, and then you can gain some kind of control over it. So talking about being open-minded, I'll give you a little bit of tough love just a tiny bit tough there's a lot of people out there with small knowledge and big opinions and it can get in the way of their happiness actually which is a bit unfortunate it's like you have this strong belief in your mind or the strong prejudice and you're fighting against the advice that people are giving you which if you took that advice if you weren't so skeptical or doubtful about it you would take the advice and it would actually help so it's like the ego can get in the way of you actually feeling better so i'm going to tell you all these people out there you're not too good to try something new not too good to try something different even something that you've tried previously before and it hasn't worked you're not too good for it you are not you're just a human being just like anybody else we're all on the same team together and we're all equal in the eyes of the law in the eyes of God and especially in the eyes of anxiety so <laughs> humble yourself a little especially I find that 
sometimes people will ask me for advice about anxiety and I'll start listing things. It's like this technique and this technique and this technique, breathing technique and mindfulness and Eckhart Tolle and other things. And they say, well, I can't do that. I can't do breathing because my, my lungs are bad or I don't have practice at it. I can't do, I can't read Eckhart Tolle because I have this prejudice against hippie stuff and woo woo. So I'm not going to do that. And before you know it, they've worked their way down the list of all these wonderful things that I have to share to share with them. And they say they can't do any of them. Well, <laughs> so keep that in mind. Maybe a few of these things you're going to think, well, I'm not going to do that. It's okay if it's just a, a few of them. But if you start finding yourself working down that list and you're saying that you cannot do any of these, that is a problem. So remember, you're not that good. <laughs> you can try something different. You can try something new. And I encourage you to. Also remember, these things are just perspective. So even if if I tell you something from Eckhart Tolle and you think, well, that's not that's a bit of hippie nonsense. It doesn't really matter if it's 100% true or not or scientific or something like that. These are just perspectives. So you can put yourselves into them. You don't have to accept them completely, but you can just try it out and see how it works. I'm not talking about absolute truth. I'm just talking about perspective. So, so you don't have to be so tough on yourself on what you will try out and what you won't try out. Just give it a crack. You've got nothing to lose. Now, you want to talk about this analogy, like dropping it like a weight. So imagine if you have this clamped fist wrapped around this the handle of this kettlebell or this 20 kilogram weight. And <laughs> all you have to do to let go is literally just let go. All you have to do is loosen your fist and put it down and the weight will drop from your hands. Now, that's like anxiety. You could literally just let it go at any moment. The problem is it's a little bit hard to do. you got your fist clamped so tight that each muscle is actually cramped up. And it's going to take you a lot of practice to actually loosen up every muscle and let go of that weight. Literally, all you have to do is drop it. And you can do that in any moment. And some people will find actually that they have a sort of talent for this. So, so when somebody say, actually, why don't you just drop your anxiety? They'll be like, oh, you know, I can do that. <laughs> but for a lot of people, it's not going to be that simple. But that is the, the ultimate goal. So at least most of the time. So keep that in mind. Also say this, on some level, you want to be anxious. And that's why you have anxiety. If you think about it, this body of yours, in this body, you are kind of like the God. You're like the master of your domain. You're the one who says what goes and what doesn't. So, if you are anxious, that must mean you want it on some level. And people will say to me, oh, you're saying it. What are you saying? Like, I, I want to be like this? You're saying I, I chose to be anxious all the time? Well, hold on. I'm not saying you chose it. And this is a funny thing. Because, actually, you're not exactly the master of your own domain. There are things that pass in your body that you haven't chosen. You know, you haven't consciously chosen. So, key example is 
when you're walking down the street and you see a beautiful woman or a very handsome man and you desire them instantly without even having to think about it. So it's not like you chose your desires. There are desires that you have that you have not chosen. They simply emerge from the subconscious. And that is a key example because it also ties into this idea of unrequited love. It's a, it's a greater example. Let's say you meet that beautiful woman or man and you talk to them and you, you start to become infatuated or, you, or enamored. You start to love this person in a romantic way. But then one day it turns out actually your feelings are not returned. What happens at that point? You kind of do have to make a decision. You kind of do have to say, okay, I'm going to choose to continue this affection, even though it's obviously not returned, or I'm going to choose to let it go. And even though it's painful to do, you will find that a lot of people, being mature, emotional people, they will eventually let it go. So for those people out there, some people say you can't control your emotions. Well, sometimes you do, and you might not even remember doing it, but I guarantee you, you have done it. So you can learn to fall out of love. Just like that, you can also learn how to fall out of anxiety. And I say this and people respond to me like, oh, you say it like it's so easy. Just drop the weight, fall out of love, fall out of anxiety. All right. I, I didn't say it's easy. I mean, it's not easy to fall out of love. It's not easy to fall out of anxiety. But easy or hard, kind of doesn't matter. That's a moot point. A moot, a moot point. <laughs> That's a moot point. <laughs> doesn't matter. Because if you want to be happy, and I think on some level you do, you will do it. Let's talk about coping mechanisms and thriving strategies. So... A lot of people talk about coping mechanisms as if there's something that doesn't actually reduce your level of stress, but just lets you maintain the same level of stress and handle it without flipping out. It's funny we say the word coping mechanism, something mechanical, so it's not exactly something conscious, not something that a conscious human being would do, more like something a robot would do. It's something in reaction, possibly unconsciously created, like it was the first thing that we could try to latch onto to try to gain some level of control over our environment or over our emotions. Coping mechanisms seek to cover up or distract from emotions. Coping mechanisms are reactive. And a lot of the time, that's not what we want. We don't just want to hide our emotions. We want to deal with them. It's not easy to do, but that's uh, something to do if we want to be happy. Thriving strategies. I just came up with this term. I don't, <laughs> I don't, there's probably a better term in the psycho, psychological textbook or self-help book somewhere. This is what I came up with when I'm talking about something proactive 
as opposed to the reactive coping mechanism. So something that's consciously created, you decide to do, and it doesn't just hide the emotion, but it re addresses, resolves, or transmutes the emotions. It takes it and, and turns it into something new, extracts the, the lesson from it, and releases that energy. Coping mechanisms are not necessarily bad. Maybe there's some times in your life when you need to just sit down in front of a TV and watch some mindless program for a couple of hours. It's, it's not bad of itself, but it is bad when those are the only things we have. And that's part of how people turn into addicts. Addicts are, could be, you know, it could be drugs, it could be TV or could be many things it's because they don't have these thriving strategies or proactive approaches to their emotions so we don't want to just deal with unhappiness we want to be able to generate happiness so some examples of coping mechanisms I already gave a few checking your phone drugs and alcohol overeating mindless tv video games sex or masturbation, and self-harm. So you notice, like I said, with the exception of self-harm, these things aren't necessarily bad of themselves. And in moderation, they're probably part of a healthy human experience. Now let's talk about examples of thriving strategies. Seated meditation, sitting cross-legged and focusing on the breath, mindfulness meditation, exercise, jogging, going to the gym, journaling. So journaling is actually taking your emotions or thoughts and emotions, putting them on paper so you can look at them. So it's part of self-reflection. EFT tapping. I have a, a good interview with my friend Sam Neffendorf talking about that and about his, uh, his process of meta health. So I recommend that video it's interesting to check out creative pursuits so like art music putting your emotions channeling them into something creative and wonderful the next one i asked on facebook how people address their anxiety and my friend marco leon who is a shaman in brazil he said ah that's simple i take ayahuasca every seven days now it's probably not something that most people are able or willing to do. <laughs> it's definitely had good effects for Michael, I, I would say. But ayahuasca is, is something that can help people or these other entheogens, something to consider. So maybe talk to your local shaman if you can find one. Tech detox, just reducing the amount of technology like phones and things that you use in your life so this one pairs up to checking a phone on the coping mechanism side now i could make the case that all of these thriving strategies that i mentioned are actually forms of meditation so first two seated and mindfulness they're definitely types of meditation exercise well, also a kind of meditation because you're applying your consciousness. A lot of people say they won't even listen to music or podcasts while they're out jogging because they like the feeling of 
feeling their breath and feeling like their feet uh, gently moving across the pavement <laughs> and being in that moment. Or, of course, former Mr. Universe Arnold Schwarzenegger said that one rep with consciousness is worth 10 reps without consciousness. So there is something about focus and, and meditation that's involved in exercise. Another example, actually, martial arts and contact sports. That was an, uh, another example that, of exercise that someone gave to me. And I, I, I've never done a lot of martial arts, but I could imagine that that, that process throwing people around on the mat, that would definitely bring you right into the moment. <laughs> uh, journaling, again, you're applying consciousness to your experiences. So this is a kind of meditation. By the way, people who have a prejudice against journaling, and they say diaries are something just for teenage girls talking about their crushes. Some of the greatest people in history have been journalists. As an example, uh, Marcus Aurelius and other Stoics. Marcus Aurelius was was a Stoic, and and also the, those philosophers. Even though Marcus Aurelius was emperor of Rome, he still took time to focus and think about what he was doing and what he was feeling. Journaling is a valuable exercise, and like I said, I could say it's kind of meditation, self reflection. EFT tapping, again, you're bringing consciousness into different parts of your body and different parts of your human experience. Creative pursuits, so everybody, well, hopefully everybody knows the experience of flow when you're involved in a creative pursuit, like improvisation or painting, when you just get lost in the art of it. It's something wonderful. Ayahuasca, again, this makes you look at your own emotions and investigate what's going on in your person and tech detox moving away from technology that's being more conscious about your use of technology so it's all about consciousness we could say that the only thing that is a thriving strategy is meditation but it's just applied in different forms the only thing that can transform consciousness is consciousness itself Consciousness transforms whatever it is applied to. Now, maybe you don't believe that statement on a grand universal level, but at least within the scope of talking about anxiety and emotions, consciousness is definitely a transformative factor. So that's important to keep that in mind. Now, talking about tech detox, 2014, there were some articles that came out. Facebook actually admitted that they were doing an emotional manipulation experiment to see if they put different things on people's feeds, how it affected the kind of stuff that they were posting, how that they were posting. So Facebook admits to doing these experiments on us. Maybe it's not the best if we're always on Facebook and leaving our emotions at the mercy of someone who admits that they're trying to manipulate us. It's not easy these days to get away from Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, whatever. But there are little things that you can introduce into your life. If you're not going to go all the way, then at least you can 
take a bathroom break and not bring your phone. It's probably not that hygienic to bring your phone into the bathroom. Anyway, you can have that five minutes to yourself (laughs) and just be at peace. Also, when you take a shower, I guess a lot of people shower rather unconsciously when they wake up early in the morning and just go through the motions. But you can actually remember to be aware of those moments, be conscious and enjoy the fact that you're away from the world and you don't have to think about the world. You can let yourself disconnect in those moments. And just going for a walk without your phone. Why not? And then you can go further, delete Facebook or delete other apps that you discover you don't actually need. Take the app off the phone. You know what I found when I deleted Facebook off my phone and I got to my computer and decided to check the notifications? 99% of those notifications are bullshit that I never needed to see and they weren't relevant to me. If Facebook was still on my phone, I would be checking it every five or ten minutes and seeing those notifications will be distracting me from everything I, I do. So maybe you even delete your account for a few days just to try it out. It doesn't have to be a permanent commitment. These days we can get phones rather cheaply for about $15 and they don't have any apps or anything on them. So maybe if you still want to be connected or still want to be accessible in an emergency, you can bring that $15 phone. Why not? And let's face it, probably people aren't going to be calling you anyway these days. Not a lot of people (laughs) make phone calls. So you'd probably be pretty free. (laughs) Now, we can only hold about eight things in mind. And if one of them is checking Facebook every 10 minutes, it's going to distract you from whatever work you actually want to do. There's that short story and later became a short film. It's called Harrison Bergeron, and it's about this dystopian society where everybody, I think the film is called Everyone Will Finally Be Equal. And everyone has the these things to slow them down or to stop them. So Harrison Bergeron being so strong, he had to have weights on him all the time. His father was quite intelligent, so he had to have a device attached to his ear every 10 or 20 minutes it would sound a very loud and annoying sound and random sound every time so he could never get used to it it would break his train of thought so he could never think up anything very intelligent and that's kind of what (laughs) the world has done to us voluntarily with facebook and, and these other things so how intelligent would you be if you can actually get rid of those things? There's a book on the subject. I haven't read it, but I've, I've seen a few YouTube videos about it and the, they recommend it. It's called Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport. So if you're having a problem addicted to technology, like most of us, <laughs> it might be a good book to read. Let's talk about types of meditation. So I already talked about breath control, pranayama. It's in the broader sense of the world, it's a type of meditation because you are focusing on your breath, 
even though you're trying to control it. Seated meditation, sitting in that cross-legged and keeping your back elongated uh, and listening to the sounds around you or focusing on your breath. It's something wonderful. (laughs) Mindfulness meditation or awareness meditation. Of course, the famous book on the subject, Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now. The one I recommend to most people is actually Tolle's audiobook version of Practicing the Power of Now because it doesn't have a lot of the woo-woo stuff that The Power of Now has, even though they're both great. The audiobook of Practicing the Power of Now is, is wonderful because gets more or less straight to the exercises, teaches you these things, and it's also read by Tolly himself. So you can hear the calm in his voice when he is instructing you. So that's really great. Also, walking meditation, which is not one that people talk about a lot, but my monk friend in Thailand taught me a specific type of walking meditation, and I'd like to share that with you. About seated meditation, people who need it the most find it the most difficult. So if you've ever meditated and mentioned it to people, you find that they say things like, yeah, I tried it. They might even say, I tried it several times, just not for me. I can't do it. It's impossible. My mind keeps going off on tangents. And every time I hear that, I'm like, yes, exactly. That's the point. That's exactly why you do it. (laughs) So there's a conception in thinking that a person who sits down to meditate, they just instantly have a clear mind. That's not the case. Most of us might not even ever have a clear mind in our lives, uh, but we can get closer to it by meditation and when our minds are busy during meditation that does mean that we need it more i would say if you are one of those people it's just like okay it is like learning to ride a bike and if somebody put a bike in front of me me never having seen a bicycle then i would be like all right i I don't know how to do that first time you jump on a bicycle you're not going to be able to ride well. You're not going to be able to balance. It's just how things are. Same thing with meditation. First time you do it, it's not going to work extremely well. But every time you do it is valuable. I'd say for those people starting out, set the bar really low. So some people will sit down literally for 10 seconds And they won't be able to handle it because their mind is just racing and then finally confront that and they can't distract themselves and they give up pretty quickly, which is unfortunate. That's why I say set the bar low. So even if you send a timer for one minute or if you can't do one minute, send a timer for 30 seconds and see if you can just sit for 30 seconds. And I won't even say you have to focus on your breath, like just sit still for 30 seconds. If you want to put the bar that low. And of course, over time, increase the bar and sit for five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. 
focus on your breath. And if your mind wanders, which it will, undoubtedly it will, bring your mind back to your breath. Focus on the breath coming up through your nostrils. Focus on the breath, the air just outside your nostrils, within your nostrils, through the nasal cavity, through your throat, into your lungs, into your belly. You can trace the path of your breath and you'll find that it's quite liberating to do that for 30 minutes or 60 minutes a day. There is a a type of change in consciousness that happens after about 15 minutes. So once you've got a, a little bit of skill, like you've been meditating for a few weeks, watch for that. Pay attention because it is... It can be quite an extreme shift in consciousness once you know how to recognize it. My monk friend said it's as extreme as suddenly being drunk in just a minute, going from sober to drunkenness. (laughs) Maybe it's not the best analogy, but (laughs) it is that extreme. I have a story about (laughs) an impatient monk I wouldn't mention him. I wouldn't want to embarrass him. <laughs> I wouldn't mention him by name. Uh, but actually, this story isn't embarrassing because it's actually something quite wonderful. So in the temple in Thailand, we would sit a few times a day for meditation. And there is this particular monk in the temple. He wasn't a very good meditator at all. But... On that particular day, he came to sit with us. And so my monk friend said, all right, I'm going to burn the incense and we will sit for as long as the incense burns. So that tends to be about half an hour. And the the impatient monk sat down and we began the meditation and he could not stop fidgeting. He was sitting there cross-legged and he would move around. He would shift his balance and try to stretch his arms and even pick up his phone and look at his Facebook notifications. He just could not sit still. But he did sit for 30 minutes. The joystick burnt out and the meditation concluded. Afterwards, I asked my monk friend about it and he said, that was wonderful. That was really great what the impatient monk did. Even despite all of those distractions he had to put, he sat for 30 minutes. So be where you're at. And it doesn't matter if you don't have a lot of skill at this or you don't have a lot of patience. Doing what you can do at your level of skill is valuable and it will improve your quality of life. So I like to say that when you sit for meditation, if all the saints and all the sages could see you just doing that small thing to bring some peace, beauty and wonder into the world, They would silently applaud. And I think people 
think I'm exaggerating when I say this, but it's absolutely true. I believe it with all my heart. When you meditate, it doesn't matter if it's only for 30 seconds. It doesn't matter if you fidget or you get distracted. You have to bring your mind back to your breath a thousand times. It doesn't matter. It's wonderful as long as you do it. So please do it. Now let's talk about awareness or mindfulness meditation. I'd like to lead you through a guided meditation. So just become aware of distractions. So there might be some sounds around you. There might be some little thing in your body that's bothering you like an itch. You might have some thoughts, some prejudices. You don't have to resolve these things. You don't even have to be perfectly comfortable with them right now. It's really enough just to be aware of them. Just being aware of them is fantastic. Now, become aware of your feet. Feel how your feet touching your socks or your shoes or the ground underneath you. If you're sitting cross-legged, you feel your feet against the other parts of your body. Move your awareness into your calves. And you'll notice that there's a certain heaviness to them. So you can feel this pull towards the earth. Mother Earth loves you so much. And maybe that's why she's always trying to bring you back down to the ground. Become aware of your thighs. Within your thighs, you'll notice that there's a certain electricity. There's a certain energy. You can feel it. What is it? Maybe it's the electricity of your central nervous system. Maybe it's the energy of life itself. Now become aware of your belly and you can feel the breath moving into your belly. Become aware of your chest and you feel your chest and belly expand as the breath moves through you. Become aware of your head and just allow yourself to relax. Now, can you bring your awareness back down through your body, from your head all the way down to your feet, piece by piece, head, neck, chest, belly, thighs, calves, feet, and back up. Feet, calves, thighs, belly, chest, neck, head. Now, can you actually feel it all at once? 
your entire body filled with your consciousness? Can you actually become aware of the space just 10 centimeters from every part of your body? It's as if you're feeling the aura around you and just stay in that space just for a few moments. Then bring the awareness back to your entire body. You are aware. You are awake. As I said, I highly recommend the audiobook of Practicing the Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. And as I said, you can hear the calm in his voice as he guides you through this type of exercise. Highly recommended. Now, let's talk about walking meditation. I'd say the best conditions for this, if you go barefoot in a park or in nature, in a forest or something like that. Being barefoot, some people will say that it means you're more connected to the earth or it's like your sort of electrical circuit and you're grounding yourself. So you're allowing energy to discharge into the earth. I couldn't tell you if that's true, but I can say there's a sort of psychological benefit from being barefoot in a place because it is like, okay, I can't run away quickly. I'm barefoot. It's like you're committed to being there. You're committed to letting go of any hurry that you had. So the walking meditation goes like this. You have each part of a step and you can break it down. Actually, you can keep breaking down step into as many parts as you like but the way I learned it was to begin balancing your weight between each of your feet and your weight is about on the middle of your foot or around the arch of your foot and then you begin by lifting the heel of your foot then lifting the ball of your foot moving the leg forward planning the ball, planning the heel, and finally, shifting the weight. Now, this is kind of a funny exercise. After my monk friend taught it to me, I would walk around the temple, and sometimes a walk, which is really only a block, would start to take me 10 or 20 minutes because I was so enamored by getting every step correct. And my monk friend said to me afterwards, you know, everything in life is like that. Everything in life can have consciousness applied to it and can be made better, can be improved and fully felt. Let's talk about the way you think or our mental habits. So a lot of the time we have a problem and we, we think that's the thing that we need to deal with. That's the thing we need to solve. 
a lot of the time, the problem isn't actually the problem. The problem is the way you think about it. So if we can think about things in a better way, the problem isn't actually that important. So we have our emotions and we have our thoughts. We have our emotions. We have the way we think about them. In Luis's video, he, he say, stated like this. He said, emotions equals feelings plus thoughts. So our emotions don't exist on their, their own. They're actually subject to our interpretations and our interpretations can cause a sort of feedback loop. So we'll talk about that later. But it's not just the fact that we have emotions. So a lot of people will get into that and, and think that, well, my emotions are just, they just do what they do. And I think how I think and, and somehow never the twain shall meet. No, this is a complete system. It's a feedback system. There is an interplay between the interpretations and the emotions. So talk about labels that you've got for yourself or, or from others. We'll get into that in a moment. And your, your identity, how you think about yourself affects your emotions. Also about your beliefs. If you believe that you can get better, Probably will. <laughs> but if you believe you can't get better, you might have a problem. Sometimes people say to me, I can't control my emotions. And they think that that's a permanent condition. Your emotions have a life of their own. and There's nothing you can do about them. It is not true. But it is a skill. Controlling your emotions is something that you have to learn how to do. Sometimes it seems like if somebody's depressed, they just expect that happiness is just something that happens. Like the people who are happy haven't had to go through any process, haven't had to learn things from their experience and analyze them and reflect or look at their own habits to see how it's affecting their emotions. They just think that it's like winning the lottery or something. It's not. You have to put the effort and the time and the thought into being happy. If you want to be happy, you must learn to be happy. Now, I do recommend, well, of course I recommend meditation. That's, <laughs> that's pretty obvious by now. I also recommend the book Awaken the Giant Within by Tony Robbins. So in that book, he talks a lot about how people can control their state of mind. I'll mention this caveat. It's also a balance. Sometimes your emotions know better than you do. So sometimes your emotions are actually intuition. And so you don't necessarily just want to find a way to get rid of your fear because it's actually telling you something. So it's, it's important to listen to your own emotions, not just trying to control them. Let's talk about the power of language. Sometimes when I ask people how they feel, they might just say, I feel good. Or maybe they say, I feel shit. 
which if you analyze that statement, it's not very descriptive at all. What does it mean to feel shit? I mean, doesn't mean that you have a sore throat. Doesn't mean your sinuses are congested. Doesn't mean you have a headache. Or maybe that you have a bellyache. Maybe it means you're anxious and nervous or fearful or hateful, angry. What does it mean? It could mean all kinds of things. But if you just say, I feel shit, I instantly know that you have not thought about any of these possibilities. And it's likely that you actually have several of them. You might be dehydrated, but because you're not familiar enough with your body, you don't know what to do about it. And in fact, okay, you're probably nervous and anxious, some other things, but if you had three glasses of water, you'd probably feel a lot better. That would relieve some stress. And that would help you better address the things that are making you anxious. <laughs> so it's important to be aware of your body. Again, comes back to meditation. Not a surprise. <laughs> and know how to interpret things. Even just naming your emotion. If you don't know exactly what's going on within your hormones or your glands, your belly. If you... Make up a name for that emotion. It will help you pin it down a little bit more and help you know the next time you feel it. So if you have a strategy that works, then you can know what to do the next time. And that's, again, this is why journaling comes in. Now, some people will say things to me like, I feel stuck or I just feel like things will never get better. And this is a funny way to say things. I could say it's a kind of lie. It's one way of looking at it. These are like mental tricks because being stuck is a kind of thought or an interpretation of the situation. Things not getting better is again an idea or an interpretation. It's not really a feeling. But if I say I feel like things are never going to get better, it sounds like it has a lot more weight than saying I think things will never get better or I believe things will never get better. Because if you think that or you believe that, well, we can change the belief. If you say you feel it, it's a lot more difficult because it's a lot more abstract. It's removed from your experience. And paradoxically, that gives it more force or makes it more difficult to change. So do you feel something or do you just think it? Because if you just think it and you say that you just think it, suddenly it becomes a lot easier for you to change. Do you want to change? Maybe try it. Now, black and white thinking. You know, people have this thing, they think that things are either perfect or they're completely wrong. The person that they meet is either an angel or an asshole or a devil. And there's no in-between. And it was interesting the other day looking at diagnoses of borderline personality. And this is one of the symptoms, which is, again, a funny way of thinking about it. Because, like I said, emotions and interpretations are a feedback loop. 
they're not isolated. And black and white thinking isn't a symptom, isn't merely a symptom of borderline personality disorder. It's also a cause of it. A classic example of black and white thinking was when George W. Bush, after 9-11, said, either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. Of course, that's not true. There are ways to be critical of U.S. foreign policy without subscribing to Club Al-Qaeda. But a more down-to-earth example. All right. I started giving my friend some advice and she started implementing it. And I said, that's great because you're becoming more mindful of your language and that will mean that things will get better. And she said, well, what's the point? It won't solve this problem, like the large problem that she had. And that is a problem, thinking like that, thinking that if you can only solve a small problem and it's not going to solve every problem in your life, that means it's not worth it. Let me tell you. It is worth it to solve small problems and it is worth it to make small progress. The only way you can make large progress is by making small progress. So please go easy on yourselves and congratulate yourselves and accept compliments and accept small incremental changes because that is how you move mountains. The journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step and so it's good to take a single step this is actually a logical fallacy this black and white thinking it's called a false dichotomy so it's like presenting two options as if those are the only two options in the entire world there are always more options and there's always more ways to look at a thing seeing it as perfect or absolutely flawed so being being comfortable with uncertainty that's part of the solution to this type of thinking and it's good to be comfortable with uncertainty because let's face it you don't always know what is good or bad and if you think you know that things are perfect or completely shit you probably wrong (laughs) because you're making this huge sweeping generalization it's a famous story that's repeated in zen buddhism and it comes from china maybe you've heard it it's the story about the chinese farmer he has a bunch of horses or maybe only two horses and one of them runs away his neighbors all come over and say oh what a shame your horses ran away what are you going to do? You know, it's so terrible. And he says, terrible? I don't know about that. <laughs> the next day, the horse shows up again and it brings five brumbies, five wild horses with it. And the neighbors again say, oh, that's so wonderful. What great fortune. And he says, wonderful. I don't know about that. <laughs> the next day, the farmer's son is trying to tame one one of the wild horses. He falls off and breaks his leg. The neighbors say, oh, it's terrible. Again, he's like, I don't know about that. 
<laughs> the next day, the army comes to conscript his son, but they see that he has a broken leg, he's invalid, not suitable for the draft. Wonderful. Well, maybe it's not wonderful. You don't always know what's wonderful, what's good or bad in the moment. So you don't have to judge it so much. Or if you have those thoughts, you don't have to put so much weight on them. If you put weight on them, you don't have to put an interpretation on top of that. <laughs> you can just be cool with whatever happens. Good or bad. You don't really know until it's the end. Maybe in retrospect, you'll see that something you thought was really bad was actually really good for you. I know that when I was deported from Mexico, it certainly seemed bad at the time. Actually, it turned out to be a blessing. It liberated me from a lot of things, a stagnant point in my life, and enabled me to travel more and open my mind. So you don't know. I don't know. You don't know. Nobody really knows what's good or bad. So just uh, take it easy when it comes to that. Another thing you can do when you think something is really terrible, really wonderful, you can start asking, well, what is good about this bad thing or what is bad about this good thing or what is interesting about this good or bad thing or just about things in general and introduce some more nuance to it you don't have to get swept up with a single interpretation life is full of nuance and actually life is a lot more fun if you are comfortable with that uncertainty and nuance and not knowing exactly what things are probably enjoy it more Let's talk about sticking with the habit of getting back on the horse. So maybe you start a new habit, like maybe you get up at 6.30 a.m. every morning and you sit for 20 minutes of meditation and you do it five or six days diligently. Everything goes great. And then on Sunday, maybe you're hungover and you miss a day. And then on Monday, you're like, well, maybe I'll just sleep in. And then a few days later, you still haven't meditated again. And you say, oh, I'm a failure. It's not true. You're not a failure. Actually, there's another way to look at it. The practice didn't begin when you sat for meditation the first time and wrote the affirmation on your wall saying you're going to sit every day for 20 minutes. The practice begins when you stop doing it for a few days. And you need to begin again. That's when the real challenge comes in. That's when things get tricky. That's the real test. This is actually a documented step on the path to discovery and the path to mastery. <laughs> Every master had to deal with stopping a habit or losing their momentum, losing focus. Take heart. You're in good company. Let's talk about resistance. What you resist persists. This is a saying that a lot of people have repeated. It comes from 
Zen philosophy as well. And it sounds kind of cute because it's a little rhyming phrase and things sound like they're more likely to be true if they rhyme. In this case, this thing rhymes and it's actually true. So if you have anxiety and you start to think, oh, why am I so anxious? I wish I wasn't anxious. I shouldn't be anxious. You probably feel more anxious or at least maintain the same level of anxiety. Paradoxical and confusing and hard to wrap your head around. And I guess that's why so many people get caught up on this point. There's a book that I highly recommend for people starting out on the journey of personal development. It's called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway by Susan Jeffers. And there's a key example in this book. Somebody gets up on stage to share their story. And she says, I have this huge problem with panic attacks. I feel so much anxiety and I just don't know what's going to happen. I feel like I'm going to lose it. And in fact, I feel like I'm about to have one right now. And Jeff says calmly, all right, go ahead. Have a panic attack. Actually, I've never seen one. So I'd really like to see what it looks like. So please go ahead. Feel free. In that moment, the woman realizes that when she's trying to have a panic attack, it's not so easy. The same thing goes when you feel anxious or fearful or something. Give yourself permission. Say to yourself, I can feel anxious. If I want to be anxious, I'll be anxious. And quickly you find that Actually, the anxiety is not so bad or you might find it diminishes or you might find it actually evaporates entirely. Giving yourself permission to be anxious allows you to be free from anxiety. It's only when you feel free to experience something that you can be free to not experience it. It's pretty weird thing actually on that previous anxiety video i translated that into spanish and my friend was like ah i think you made a mistake here in the translation because what you said didn't make any sense like try to be anxious no this is this is actually a key point allow yourself to be anxious and you will feel less anxious i make this analogy about a cramp, like a cramp in a muscle. So I think everybody has this experience. You wake up in the middle of the night and you have a cramp in your calf and maybe you jump out of bed and try to walk it off or something like that. The reason you have a cramp, the muscle gets a little bit out of place and it tenses up to try to get itself back into position. Now, I propose that anxiety is actually something quite similar, but not with a muscle, actually with your soul. So your soul gets a little bit out of place, and so it tenses up to try to get itself back into position. The good thing is you don't have to try to walk off a soul cramp. All you have to do is allow your soul to go back into the right position, and it will. All you have to do is allow it. 
really that simple. <laughs> Believe that? <laughs> Believe that shit? Well, try it. See if it works for you. Another analogy about floating downstream. So you don't exactly have to visualize this. But if you think that floating downstream on your back, it's very easy to do. Very easy to float downstream. Just allow yourself to be taken. If you struggle, you might be in a bit of a worrying situation. You probably start to sink. If you just allow yourself to float down the creek, it's quite liberating. Let's talk about faith. This word has, of course, a religious connotation and like believing in God or something like that. That has something to do with it. But when I say, I say to myself, have a little faith, or a little faith doesn't hurt, Kurt. I analyzed that because it came up during a meditation. I started to think, what does that really mean to have a little faith? It was so calming, so comforting to have that thought. I was trying to figure out what was behind it. One perspective is... The knowledge that you're a part of a greater process. So at any instant in your life, things don't have to be perfect. Because this isn't the only note on the keyboard, the only chord in the symphony. Even if it's a little dissonant, there's a whole orchestra and a whole overture waiting to be played out. Any moment in your life is a part of your life. It doesn't have to be perfect. Anything that happens to you is a part of what's happening in an entire society, an entire world, an entire universe. There's something cool going on here. And it's not cool just isolated to a particular spot. Every individual... It's part of an integrated whole. And you might doubt me, saying, I'm not part of a greater process. I'm a complete individual. I'm not integrated with anything. I say, that's okay. Because your doubt is also part of this greater process. And I say this to you now, and maybe it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but in a couple of weeks couple of months you practice the things that I'm talking about you start to get a glimpse this little feeling and this little associated thought and you think yeah I am part of something I am part of something (laughs) and maybe it stays with you maybe it drifts off in a moment and when you feel that remember what I said Because once you get that glimpse, you can know 
that that knowledge can be with you always. And it will be. Let's talk about mental labels. Mental labels for abstractions. When I describe these processes, trying to improve your habits around your languages, you might be tempted to say, that's so hard, so difficult to do. Is it though? Because you never actually have to face the entire process. All you have to do is face individual parts of the process. So you try to change your language and then you forget for a day and you start to slip back into old habits and you phrase things in a way that's not empowering for you. And then you begin again. You don't meditate and then you remember and you begin to meditate. Any part of this process is not hard or easy. All you have to do is take the appropriate action for that moment. There's nothing hard about that. The way of the samurai, it says that All a warrior needs to do to master the world, to master his life, is to master the present moment. Mental labels for yourself. You might think you're a certain thing. You might say, I'm an anxious person. When someone asks you, why don't you change? You say, that's just who I am. I have HDND, ADHD, I have borderline personality disorder. These things can be an excuse for your behavior. So you do something bad or something that makes others uncomfortable and they say, hey, please don't do that. And you say, hey, well, I have this disorder. That's why I do it. And the hidden premise or the hidden conclusion is, therefore, I do not have to change which friends will probably tolerate for a while, but eventually they get tired of that. You really want to excuse not changing? Some diagnosis? Or do you want to improve yourself and make life better for yourself and those people around you? Sometimes these things are an explanation for behaviors and not necessarily justification but just a way of helping you understand yourself. And that can be good. It can be beneficial. It can also be a self-fulfilling prophecy for your behavior. So you've done these things before. You've had these behavior and these beliefs. And so some guy in a white coat has told you that you will always be like this. And so you accept it. And so you behave in a way that is complicit with that idea. Is that how you want to live? What are you? You're not a disorder. You're not a bunch of words. You're a living, breathing human being. And you can decide how you act, how you think, 
and even how you feel. So, make your choices accordingly. Yeah, the guy in the white coat told you that you have a disorder and maybe he told you that to get better you had to take pills or he told you that this thing is based on a chemical imbalance in your brain and it's never going to change. But did that guy see into your soul? Did he see the power of your spirit? Did he see what's in your heart? Did he write that on his fucking ring binder? A long time ago, they diagnosed me with psychosis and they told me I would have to take pills forever. Otherwise, I would periodically get psychotic episodes. It wasn't true. I got better. It wasn't easy, but I did it. And I did it in my own way. What people have said to you, people's opinions of you, even if they're expert opinions, they don't determine your destiny. You're the one who does that. By your thoughts, your words, your action, your character. That's your decision. You have the power. Don't let anybody tell you what's impossible for you. You are powerful. You are wonderful. And you can do these things. Your limits are unknown. Your future is your own. And with that, I thank you for listening. If you found this video helpful on this podcast, I hope you share it with your friends and so they can also get better. And if you found it useful, I guess you did because you listened to the end, send a reminder in your calendar to come back and watch this again in a month or two and maybe you can get some new insight. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for trying to improve this world in whatever small way, beginning with yourself, because that's what really counts. Have a great day.